Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus. And we're picking up this evening with step number eight on freedom from anger and on meekness. And we currently we are on page 121 with number seven. And uh, just before we get going, in case anyone is listening to the podcast, I got a few late uh, emails or messages through Facebook about not being able to connect because they didn't get the email. And if they sign up after the email has been sent, uh, they won't get one until the next time. It goes out early Wednesday morning. So just so uh, people know if they listen to the podcast that if, if they have signed up, they should get the next one. Okay. So again, we're on page 121, number seven. Some who are prone to anger are neglectful of the healing and cure of this passion. But these unhappy people do not give a thought to him who said, the moment of his anger is his fall. So, you know, anger is often, I think, justified in our minds, certainly by the circumstances that surround it. And so often we don't look for a cure for the passion. We look for a way to uh, uh, give vent to that anger and not necessarily thinking, as John says here, uh, the, that the moment of our anger is our fall. And we talked a little bit about this the last time that St. James saying the anger of man does not bear fruit that is acceptable to God, that so often our anger is touched by our selfishness, you know, our own desires to have our, our will fulfilled that uh, there hasn't been a purification of the mind and the heart in such a way uh, that uh, is necessary uh, for us in the spiritual life. And so that anger is often directed towards others in, in a way of uh, punishing them or giving them uh, back greater insult than perhaps they gave us. And uh, we hear something similar in the book of Proverbs, uh, pride rideth before the fall. And similarly, I think anger, you know, that often, and we will see, is tied to judgment of others, uh, precedes a fall in the spiritual life, that we end up falling into the very thing that we are criticizing another for. Number eight, there is a quick movement of a millstone, which in one moment grinds and does away with more spiritual grain and fruit then another crushes in a whole day. And so we must pay attention with understanding. It is possible to have such a blaze of flame suddenly fanned by a strong wind as will ruin the field of the heart more than a lingering flame. And so anger has the potential to be disastrous for the spiritual life and to undo much in the spiritual life, that it will lead us to respond with such fierceness towards others, that there is a lasting breakdown of, of charity, uh, as well as uh, a loss of you know, so many other uh, virtues that perhaps we've been struggling to grow in. Humility would be another one. So uh, letting anger burst into flame or not watching our hearts in that regard uh, can be incredibly destructive and certainly can not only ruin our, our, our interior state and the virtues that we struggled with, but relationships as, as well. As I mentioned, there's a breakdown of charity that takes place. And we ought not to forget, he continues, my friends, that the, the wicked demons sometimes suddenly leave us so that we may neglect our strong passions as of little importance and then become incurably sick. We've mentioned this in passing uh, many times over the course of the years, that uh, the demons will often uh, pull back in terms of the fierceness of the temptations that we experience or the thoughts that often go along with them, uh, sometimes to lead us into a kind of false assurance that we've overcome the passions. And so we begin gradually to become neglectful in our vigilance, our watchfulness of our thoughts, uh, or in other spiritual practices. And having let down our guard, 
then we can be overwhelmed suddenly uh, as if by a wave of thoughts, feelings, ideas that then pull us down very quickly. And certainly this is true with anger. Uh, I think it, the image of it blazing up very quickly or being fanned in the flame and all, all of a sudden taking over uh, is easy for us to understand. I think that's common to our experience that we can find ourselves losing our cool and uh, in, a, in a heated moment, uh, really being overcome with anger and lashing out uh, at a person. And uh, I once, you know, I had this weird experience one time that I found myself get so angry, and I won't describe the moment, uh, but it was almost like a little out-of-body experience that I observed myself uh, being so angry, of like yelling, watching myself yelling about something. And typically I'm not an angry person and I don't uh, have these flames up, but every once in a while, something like this will happen. And uh, where we lose control in the moment uh, because something in our minds is so egregious. So, so there's such a breakdown of, of charity uh, uh, and that we've you know, borne something that seems unbearable and or we're being asked to bear it. And, uh, and we re reach this point where we can no longer take it. And so anger, perhaps more, more than some of the other uh, vices that we talk about, there has to be a particular kind of vigilance there and seeking to allow the grace of God to touch it and, uh, and to keep the, the vision of Christ before us, in particular, his meekness, which we'll look at here shortly. Number nine, I'm sorry, number 10. As a hard stone with sharp corners has all its sharpness and hard formation dulled by knocking and rubbing against other stones and is made round. So in the same way, a sharp and curt soul by living in community and mixing with hard, hot tempered men undergoes one of two things, either it cures its wounds, wound by its patience or by retiring, it will certainly discover its weakness, its cowardly flight making it clear to it as in a mirror. So, you know, John came to understand certainly that uh, one could live the solitary life and not see the uh, passion of anger that lies within. It's uh, really in our living with others. And I think the example is a good one that it smooths off the rough edges uh, having to deal with the difficult personalities of those around us uh, that eventually we have to learn uh, how to be patient, how to be charitable, uh, not to let the heart be stirred. And either, either, either this happens, he tells us, or eventually we will flee the situation. And uh, it's not an easy thing to endure. I think to when you're seeking to live a peaceful life in particular and uh, find oneself being stirred to, to anger or one's heart being agitated, uh, I think we can have this feeling of, of wanting to flee that and to change the externals uh, in order to uh, remove ourselves from that which agitates. And so often we're warned uh, by the fathers that we take ourselves with us and we've often talked about Cassian uh, speaking about some of the monks finding themselves getting angry at inanimate objects, uh, even though they're living in absolute solitude that, you know, a piece of wood gets in their way and they find themselves, you know, fussing about it and becoming angry at, you know, something that certainly isn't alive. And so it, the, the passion can dwell within us. And so it's the very testing that we undergo that often uh, softens the heart and uh, allows us to become more and more patient. Uh, we might see others' poverty with a clarity, but I think we also uh, begin to see our own. And uh, because it's highlighted for us when we undergo these experiences within community. 
when we see how easily sometimes that we are moved to anger, anger, or how times, sometimes we can be petty or terribly impatient. And, uh, and so John says, you know, there are times that it's best for certain individuals to live in community because it's there that they're, they'll be purified of the passion. Any comments so far on anything that John has said before we move on? Okay. All right. Number 11, an angry person is a willing epileptic who due to an involuntary tendency keeps convulsing and falling down. So a willing epileptic is sort of an uh, unusual image, but uh, someone who goes into fits and is, uh, uh, you know, willingly throwing themselves into a kind of convulsive state. And, uh, and then is certainly finds himself falling uh, because of it and into sin. And uh, so it's a powerful image, I think, to hold on to, you know, that this is often what we look like when uh, we are given over to anger, you know, our image becomes contorted, you know, our faces, uh, take on this, you know, uh, sort of harsh look, and uh, but you know, we we find ourselves thrown into a, a kind of fit where we lose control of our emotional state, and we begin to act out. Number twelve. Nothing is so inappropriate to those repenting as a spirit agitated by anger because conversion requires great humility and anger is a sign of every kind of presumption. So, you know, now that we've read a good number of, of the sayings here, uh, I think it's important for us to see and acknowledge that this is not something easy. The statements are clear and pithy uh, here, but the, the battle against anger is, is a very difficult one. And John is beginning to show us how deeply it can reach that it involves every kind of presumption that we are making judgments about either things that we see or are said uh, or about the internal state of another individual uh, that we have absolutely no way of being sure about or having any clarity about. And even when somebody, we see somebody do something or when they act towards us in a certain way, we don't know what gave rise to that or what gave rise to the temptation, as it were. And so John is saying here, we, when we give ourselves over to anger, it's evidence that we are presuming a great deal about the circumstances. And I think we've all probably had those experiences where we, we felt that, and that we had a clear view of a situation, that we understood the facts, that we saw things with our own, you know, own eyes. And so we make a judgment and we can be harsh towards another only to find out that the, the circumstances, the reality behind it are completely different than what we imagined. Uh, and or, or we we think that by stating the truth and uh, putting it forward as we see it, you know, articulating our judgment of a situation is going to lead to certain uh, results. And sometimes we can be surprised there that we might have seen part of the truth. We might have been seeing something very clearly, but John is warning us that we may not see a whole host of other things that are going to have an effect upon how things play out. And certainly, as well as having an effect upon our, our judgment, that it's going to blind us in one way or another. And, you know, anger in and of itself, too, uh, once it flames up, begins to blind us as well. Yeah, it becomes impossible to have a kind of spirit of generosity towards another, to suspend judgment 
or to think the best when we've given when we've already been drawn into a, a negative judgment. And uh, you know, sometimes it's you know very easy to fall into it. We see a quote from somebody that we don't like online or an article written by them, you know, something that this or that theologian or pope said, and we think, I'm not reading that, or this is, you know. I'm sure filled with all of this nonsense and, you know, we'll make these very quick judgments uh, without uh, having a kind of generosity of spirit to listen on a deep level to what God might be saying to us, even if it's a difficult and strained set of circumstances, that God might be revealing something very important to us about what another person is going through, a particular struggle that they might be going through, or perhaps he's revealing something to us about our own heart or the state of our own spiritual life, where we need to struggle uh, more, more in terms of our prayer life or guarding our heart against certain thoughts about a particular individual. And so this is one of the more important uh, sayings here or statements of, of this step. That uh, of presumption that, uh, and we can even see it, I think, in our reading of this text and so many of the others that we've looked at over time, the importance of suspending judgment uh, in order not to, to immediately assume that we gra are grasping what is being said with the perfect clarity or where the writer is leading us ultimately. And certainly I think we can do the same thing in, in life as a whole, you know, what, what's being played out uh, and how we are reading another person. And if we move to a quick judgment without allowing them uh, to explain what they're thinking or what's going through their mind and their heart, uh, you know, simply a look from them or a way of expressing something can drive us into deep anger. Any thoughts or comments on this particular saying? Okay. Number 13. If it is a mark of extreme meekness, even the, in the presence of one's offender, to be peacefully and lovingly disposed towards him in one's heart, then it is certainly a mark of hot temper when a person continues to quarrel and rage against his offender, both by words and gestures, even when by himself. So, you know, meekness would be to be peacefully disposed towards any person that we would encounter, regardless of what we might be facing or how they might be treating us. Uh, but when we are in the grip of anger and rage, that this can carry on, John tells us, long beyond uh, the encounter with the other. That anger can take hold of our hearts where we find ourselves enraged and still carrying on an argument within our own minds and hearts with the other person. Or we can imagine certain scenarios where I'll tell this person this if they say this to me. And we can have a very vivid enactment in our own mind and multiple uh, things in our own mind that we are imagining that we would say or do to the other if they did this or that to us. And uh, so meekness we, we begin to see and what begins to emerge in the text is an incredible strength and virtue. This capacity to be positively disposed towards another and to, uh, to suspend that judgment and to listen very deeply and to think the best of the other and to be able to see the goodness within them, not dismiss the, the very essence of who they are as human beings. That's an incredible strength to have, that's an incredible virtue to have and is going to affect every relationship that we have and the way that we look at the world as a whole. I think uh, when we are in, in the grip of anger, we very quickly you know, fall into sarcasm, pessimism about life as a whole. We begin to see things through a certain lens that is very dark. And so eventually we can uh, develop a kind of hopelessness 
about the world and others, and perhaps even our, ourselves. Uh, Deborah wrote, so many, me here uh, to rebut rather than listen for understanding. Yeah, that, that's true. And I, I find that it happens so often in discussions where you can tell that another person is not listening to what you're saying, that they're already formulating in their mind the next question they're going to have or the comment that they're going to have. Or often we will do the same thing. We will not, again, give a, an individual full attention to what they are, are saying. Uh, and because there already we, we are, we can't imagine a perception of the truth or of a reality that somehow does not fit with our own. And there's a kind of arrogance in that, as if somehow uh, an individual could not see some aspect of, uh, of life, of circumstances that people go through, and uh, that would uh, deepen and broaden out one's perspective. You know, we can become very myopic in our view of life and, uh, and you know, the moral life as a whole and pigeonhole people and become very black and white in our evaluation of circumstances. And, you know, as a priest, you sort of see the underbelly of everything and nothing is as it, see, as it seems. And, uh, and by this, I mean that people are often going through a lot more than what is seen on the surface. And the complexity of people's choices uh, and what drives them or the sorrows that they bear uh, are often unseen by the, the majority of people. And sometimes even those who are closest to them. And, uh, and so in so many ways, this is why what John is saying here rings so true for me is the, the, this idea of suspending judgment. Because there's more that's hidden that is seen than is uh, than seen on the surface. Any other comments? I see a hand up. Yes, Kevin. Yeah. Um, sorry, one sec. Um, I wanted to ask, and this may be from not familiar enough but um uh, i wanted to ask whether there's any difference in meaning um when he talks about anger mm -hmm. um i'm thinking about like it, it at least for me it seems like i can't necessarily control like the immediate emotion that happens um but i mean you know i don't know maybe maybe that is what he's talking about but i wanted to maybe see if there was a difference in sure. what he means by that. Okay. Yeah, you know, certainly there, you know, anger on one level is exactly what you describe it, an emotion and part of being a human being. And uh, in and of itself uh, would not be judged as morally right or wrong at that point, uh, certainly. And sometimes, we, as we've discussed, that anger is often revelatory that it, it arises at times where there is something out of place or wrong, an injustice, for example, uh, that is, is taking place. And so the emotion itself can reveal something, whether it's about the circumstances or within our hearts. Uh, what we find in the fathers is, is uh, sort of the sense of anger as being part of being, uh, being a human being, in fact, a faculty of the soul. They called it the insensitive faculty or the insensitive power that it, it, it does what it sounds like. It allows us to become incensed at sin and in particular our own sin. And so it's meant to lead us to respond with a kind of swiftness and quickness when we see temptation come to us or when we, we see ourselves going down a particular path to draw us away from it. Uh, but because of our sin and our weakness, we will often 
the fathers tell us, direct it towards another. Uh, so that judgment that is tied to the, this faculty and meant to be used uh, primarily in, in our own spiritual battle is often directed to what we perceive in others. You know, and so if we are resentful towards another person, that insensitive faculty is going to see every weakness in them or become irritated with the things that they do. And so we will swiftly look for chinks in the armor and direct our anger towards those things. And so anger as an emotion is not sinful in their mind. It's when it becomes tied to actions or words or, or thoughts that really desire to diminish the other. Uh, whether it's in our own eyes or where we seek to respond uh, in greater kind to do them harm emotionally through uh, verbally yelling at them or physically acting against them or trying to obstruct something in their life uh, because you know we resent something that they they did to us. And so we want to be very careful when we're, when we're thinking about anger because we don't want to, uh, we're not stoics as human beings. You know? So we have a whole range of feelings and, uh, and these feelings often tell us something and speak to us a particular truth. But in and of themselves, we don't want them alone to guide what we do, how we act or the judgments that, that we make that we want to, to scrutinize that, you know, certainly through our, our reason, but more importantly, through the, the grace that we receive from God and through the gift of faith, that it allows us to comprehend the deeper truths of certain circumstances and realities. And uh, I think we, in our own day and age, because there has been this kind of movement away from the understanding of these faculties of the soul, or just even the notion of a soul at all, to uh, seeing anger simply as an emotion and that can be legitimized for any number of reasons and unformed and unshaped by the grace of God. And even at times by reason, we see it being directed uh, towards others uh, without anything sort of uh, inhibiting it. And, you know, there have been all these mass shootings here in the, the last few days. I think 25 people here in California alone uh, were killed. And we see people but acting out in this anger in far more, you know, benign ways, we might say, you know, online in the way that we speak to other, others, that there is this kind of lack of generosity of spirit that we've been talking about or this willingness to suspend judgment, knowing that anger is a very powerful thing, and that if it simply takes over a person, that it can become something very destructive, and especially if it becomes tied, you know, to sinful ten tendencies. Daniel. So a question on that, I guess, is it, if I'm succinctly understanding kind of what you said, anger, when it is, when the, the fruit or something of that anger is repentance, meaning like drive, you know, turning away from temptation or compunction or something like that or 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 i mean i guess it could also be anger leading to like it, it, in an injustice anger leading towards you know helping the one in need mm -hmm. versus anger if its fruit is more bad which is directing like I don't, I don't like trying to fix everything else in a sense. You know what I mean? And and but that's different. So is that kind of like yeah, you anger know, almost an emotion or a good thing versus anger as a vice or a sin? Yeah, yeah. I always find myself going back to that saying from James. You know that the anger of man does not bear fruit 
acceptable to God, that there is something that, you know, that when it is touched by sin and uh, selfishness, willfulness, or the will to power, you know, to gain emotional, you know, ground on another person, that so often our anger is tinged with those things. And, you know, the focus upon the self or wanting to defend, defend one's own reputation. And so we will lash out at, an, at another to put them in their place. And so, you know, the, the standard for us isn't even sort of uh, uh, anger that is well controlled, you know, emotional state that is well controlled. I think what we see uh, in Christ is the standard for us that this divine love allows us to see with a greater clarity the dignity of the other, even when they do evil, As to the point that Christ can say, do not resist one who is evil. I think, in fact, that's one of the most jarring uh, statements in the gospel, do not resist one who is evil. Uh, and in this, we are Im it's call being called to imitate the self-emptying love of the cross, that love trumps all things, including our life. That, uh, you know, we, so often we can rationalize doing other, others harm. And precisely because uh, not that we don't see what they do as being wrong or evil, but that we don't see the, the something greater that God has done for us and for all through his shedding of his own blood on the cross. But we lose sight of the fundamental dignity that other human beings have in Christ as well. That there, no matter how deeply a person has sunk into darkness, into evil, that there's always a spark of the life uh, of God within them, who sustains them in being. And it's really only the eyes of faith that allow us to see that, so that we can take that step forward into what seems, you know, what would seem irrational or nonsensical in the eyes of the worldly that what we are called to is a deeper kind of love, cruciform, a love that is cruciform. That we would rather stretch out ourselves and endure all than to cause another pain or, you know, to commit evil against them. And, you know, we can bear the name of Christian, but I, I think it's, it's a, a, another thing to truly live out, truly live out the gospel. You know, it's where, again, we move from the notional to the real. And I think this is precisely what makes the, the writings of the fathers so powerful for me because of the, the focus on praxis, you know, practical theology. How is the gospel lived out in our day-to-day -day life? How do we struggle with something like anger within our heart or anger directed towards another? or when that becomes rage and, and murderous, you know, and, or when we are faced with something that is, you know, uh, you know, from all appearances evil as well, do we respond to, to that? And, you know, there are certain circumstances, you know, where the, the church teaches you know, self-defense, you know, certainly legitimate or of the innocent, but, you know, I think, in our day-to-day -day living, from moment to moment, in our encounter with other human beings, we so often rationalize, you know, this way of treating others with a harshness that isn't reflective of that love. Jeff O. writes, so holy righteous anger is anger directed towards the true enemy, the demons. The anger towards another undermines their dignity as an image of God. Right. You know, I think it is, is to treat them like the demons, and it's to use that insensitive faculty to direct it towards another human being. Angela. 
Um, I, I'm sort of playing around with the trying to um, bring together the Catholic teaching on a just war mm -hmm. uh, in relation to, to these texts. Mm -hmm. Could you just say something? You're, you're breaking up on my end. Did anybody hear Angela's full question? Okay. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll try. Maybe she'll come back in clearly here in a moment, but I'll try to address what she was saying that you know, the church has consistently getting a little bit of feedback here. Hold on for a second. Um, yeah, uh, if you can type it, I don't know. I think she uses an iPad, so I'm not sure how easy that will be. But, you know, the church has consistently taught, you know, uh, about self-defense or just war. But we, I think we found in you know, sort of the more modern popes, uh, even a calling of that into question, given the, our capacity for self-destruction. And uh, that a lot of what has been taught has to be rethought in that regard. Uh, that th there is this capacity now for us to, to direct our uh, actions towards others, even in the pursuit of justice in such a way that is uh, going to be destructive to the world itself or uh, destructive to the innocence uh, of this world. And, uh, and, and so I think, you know, going back to the fathers and more importantly, going back to the scriptures to Christ himself becomes more important than ever for us. You know, that we, we live in this changing world where we see these constant uh, upheavals taking place. And um, I think we have to step back and say, you know, what is the gospel really calling us to? And uh, what does truth himself reveal to us, not only in regards to our relationships with others and how we respond to them, but also when it comes to uh, national or international conflict, uh, you know, what is our response uh, to this? I, as, you know, prior to this group, I was reading a little quote, I think it was from or Origen, who said, when our Lord removed the sword from Peter's hand, that he removed it from all of our hands, that he who, who lives by the sword dies by the sword. And uh, in some ways, I, I think we aren't, especially uh, in line with this kind of thought, aren't, aren't willing to allow ourselves to be challenged radically uh, by the, the teachings of Christ and also by the, the witness of the cross itself. What does it mean to have one's life and response to the realities of the world be shaped again by cruciform love and to receive that love in the Holy Eucharist? And uh, I think it was even John Paul who was, you know, beginning to question this as well as things like uh, capital punishment, you know, uh, in regards, you know, how, how do we look at the dignity of human life? at this point? And is there a kind of need uh, for this? Or are there other ways that as we as Christian men and women are to approach even the most difficult realities of human life? I think we're, we're getting Angela back here. So maybe she'll be. Uh, Sister Barbara writes, what about anger that motivates one to take action for justice for others? Any room in the fathers for this, or is it called something else in their terminology? No, I, I think they would see it as, you know, that this would be a legitimate thing, you know, when it comes to justice, and especially for the innocence of this world who are suffering, that anger is an indicator for us of a certain truth, that there's an injustice here that has to be addressed. Uh, I think what they would say is that how that is addressed uh, has to arise out of hearts that have been purified and shaped by divine love. Otherwise, we are not going to see with clarity that even our response and judgment from a purely human standpoint or a level of reason is there's always going to be this possibility 
of that being distorted or being something far less that, than we are being called to by the love that is revealed to us in Christ. And so our anger in the face of injustice might call for response, but what is that response to be? And uh, I don't know. I don't know if we can put that freely in the hands of gov government and stand back and not be a part of that discussion and uh, and you know not be you know be able to articulate in more than words, but in the way that we live our life, something of this love of Christ and the meekness of Christ, even in the face of the evil of the world. You know, we, we are talking about, about one who allowed the evil of the world to be thrust upon himself, the consequence of all sin to be, and, uh, and its ultimate consequence, death itself to be thrust upon him. And, uh, and we live in union and communion with him and with each other. And so again, we, we don't have the luxury of making a distinction between enemy and friend anymore you know that everyone stands before us as one for whom christ died and so if that doesn't fundamentally change the way that we think about things including justice then uh i don't think we've allowed the gospel to penetrate our minds and our hearts and so i'm not going to pretend that i have the answers to those questions but i i, I think that the way that we often talk about it as christians and how it's often written about uh, do, does not go far enough. And that's true about so many different things uh, in regards to the virtues and how they are made manifest. Okay, why don't we move on just a little bit more and see where John leads us here. Uh, number 14. If the Holy Spirit is peace of soul, as he is said to be, and as he is in reality, and if anger is disturbance of heart, as it actually is, and as it is said to be, then nothing so prevents his presence in us as anger. So when we speak of the Holy Spirit, you know, as being the, the peace of Christ or the peace of the kingdom dwelling within us, uh, then anger or the disturbance of the heart is more than anything else going to drive that peace of Christ out of our hearts. And again, I think this follows nicely on what we were talking about. What does it mean for us to, to live in the invincible peace of the kingdom? you know, the invincible patience, the invincible love of the kingdom, and have that form and shape our mind and our heart and the way that we experience how others act to us and how we experience the things of this world. Where do we really place our hope? You know, is it in that which endures unto eternity? Or is so much of our response to things really about protecting what's seems to be most important to us or our own or what does not endure and so again i think you know both certainly by john and by the gospel we're called to go a great deal deeper uh, daniel writes it's interesting because it seems like christ acted by suffering with the suffering and without destroying the one causing the suffering I think it's right, you know, what Christ does is that he takes hold of it and em embraces it and does not give back in kind. You know, he takes it all upon himself. And, you know, certainly the cry from the cross, you know, this experience of the one who has known perfect intimacy with the Father through all eternity, crying out, my God, my, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, all of these speak to us about embracing uh, and allowing himself to, to be swallowed up by death itself in order to, to overcome it. 
that life, this is what we are reflecting on. Life allows itself to be swallowed up in death in order to conquer it. And, uh, you know, for us as human beings, you know, how, how do we enter into that mystery? Because that's what it is. I think, you know, we always are reductive in our thinking about this. And how, how do we reduce divine love, divine mercy to something that is, you know, fits with our own judgment? when we are being called to this radical, unconditional love and forgiveness and mercy. So, you know, to, to lose the, our peace is to lose something of the presence and action of the spirit in our life, which, you know, in our day-to-day -day spiritual battle, it should make us again, more vigilant. Though we know very many bitter fruits of anger, we only found one, its voluntary, involuntary offspring, which though illegitimate is nevertheless useful. I've seen people flaring up madly and vomiting their long stored resentment who by their very passion were delivered from the passion and who have obtained from their offender either repentance or an explanation of a longstanding grievance. I've seen others who seem to show a brute patience, but who were nourishing resentment within them under the cover of silence. And I considered them more pitiable than those given to raving because they were sawing the whiteness of the dove with black gall. We need great care in dealing with this snake for it too, like the snake of carnality, has nature collaborating with it. So even when we are talking about anger and when we are scrutinizing how it manifests itself john is telling us we have to be very careful because there's somebody who can spew forth this resentment and in the act itself be freed because the person who it's directed towards receives it offers explanation and it, it leads to repentance and a renewal of communion between them Whereas there can be somebody who seems very innocent to us, seems patient, never moved, but deep within them, they hold this resentment towards others. And so, you know, a person might look obedient on the surface, but within their hearts, they, they might have a kind of hatred and resentment towards those who hold some position of authority over them. So even here, with in regard to what we see anger do and the fruits of anger, John says, be careful. The, the, the trickery of the evil one uh, can be such that it can distort our vision and make us, again, interpret what's going on uh, incorrectly. Daniel, you have a smile. Do you have a thought on your mind? Oh. I ho a hopeful reading for the Irish, such as myself. <laughs> well, you said it. I'm glad you said it, and uh, I didn't. Uh, yeah, I think his point's well taken. You know, I think there there can be this release that if it's embraced by another and understood, can be liberating. Uh, where and this where is where we would get to an injustice. Maybe something was done, and somebody was deeply wounded and hurt, and so they voice it, and maybe you know they go overboard, become angry, but ultimately they're freed because it leads to a conversation with another, an explanation, and they can let go of the resentment. But a person who is you know puts on the facade of religiosity of the facade of meekness, of patience, John is saying is more pitiable because there is this black gall within and it doesn't show itself directly, but their, their hearts can be black as hell. And, you know, I, I think when we look at Christ's interactions at times with the scribes and the Pharisees, you know, this is what he's saying. 
about them that, you know, on the surface, there was this piety or appearance of piety. But if you remember at one point, he says, you know, that they are like whitewashed tombs. And we talked about this once before that uh, to come into contact with a, a dead body would be to make one ritually unclean. And so often they would paint the tombs that would dock the hillsides, they would whitewash them. Uh, so people would know to avoid them. And so what Jesus is saying is that simply by coming into contact with the Pharisees and the scribes is like an individual coming into contact with a dead body, that you become unclean simply by being around them. And so the real danger of a person who is feigning virtue, uh, feigning patience, uh, you know, that they carry within them something very dark and destructive. And so simply being around them uh, can create agitation. Uh, there's a little saying at the top of the next page where he talks, an angry person is like a wolf, often disturbs the whole flock and wounds humble souls. So an angry individual in a, in a group of others even if they have this appearance of piety, can create agitation for the whole flock. And uh, merely by their presence. And, um, you know, and this, this is what is, you know, truly destructive. You know, that the evil one can work in these ways that, uh, that we often can't see. Uh, Carol writes, can't acting out of a virtue, patient silence, lead us to actually acquire that virtue? Absolutely. And so, you know, struggling to be patient or struggling to remain silent in the face of somebody's, you know, harshness or insulting words would be a way of seeking to grow uh, in, in those virtues or in humility. But that's quite different from I think what John is describing here, you know, where someone is putting on the mask, as it were, there's a kind of hypocrisy, the mask of virtue uh, to be seen in a certain way, but within they're carrying all the same resentments and harshness in their judgment towards others. You know, that they're, you know, they often would look at like the hoi polloi, you know, the, the, the people, the fields, the farmers, those who could not live the, the law as they, as they had constructed it, you know, with all the, the minutiae around the law and the, the terms of the hand-washing codes and all the, you know, food purity laws that, you know, certainly somebody working out in the fields or tending the sheep, you know, they're not going to be able to attend to all the things that th they made as essential. And so even though they had this piety that within their heart, they held people in contempt. And this is why Jesus is the harshest, I think, with those in the gospel where there is hypocrisy. You know, he, he hammers against it because it can become so hard that nothing will penetrate it. Ambrose. Let's see here. It seems like while anger can be useful, a useful motivator to act, the more perfect motivation is love. If we see someone hurting and in need, the motivation of compassion and charity seems more than sufficient motive to act even when the pain or need is caused by some injustice. And when love is our motive, we can then turn that same love toward even the offender who may be even greater in greater need by the, the, their damaging of their relationship with God and others. They may be imperiling their eternal soul in addition to whatever circumstances may have led to their unjust action. Contrast that to anger, which only tends to act in favor of the victim while often seeking the suffering of the offender or at best ignoring the offender's need. Right. You know, that we beautifully said, and uh, I think we all have these blind spots and hard spots in our judgment as, as human beings. 
that again, when we, even when we see things clearly, something like injustice, as you said here, we will see it with a certain perspective, but it's only love and divine love that allows us to see the greater picture, the full picture of everything that is going on there with both victim and, and offender, as you say. Sue and Mark. Okay, yeah, I was gonna ask a question that was really kind of jumping off Carol's um, uh, question on patience and silence, but um, Amber's quote really was really good and kind of answered it, I think in a very beautiful way. But um, the question was, you know, you can know people who are very angry, some injustice has been done to them, and they, and forgiveness of that takes time, and there's a struggle with anger that occurs, and so, and often, you can find that the person who has offended you has also suffered in some grievous way, and you got in their way just at the wrong moment, but still, anger can be, as we you have said, the result of an injury, but, but also um, it take it can take time. And it doesn't mean that you have you may have a desire to forgive, but it takes time to forgive. And I think that's important to realize. Uh, absolutely. That's yeah. I don't, you know, I think when we read something like this, it often gets telescoped in our mind, you know, and it's not easy, you know, to uh, you know, struggle with something like anger, nor is it easy to see, as well as he'll go on to show us, the, the demon's trickery as well, you know, the ways that anger can be stirred up in us and directed toward, towards others. And so it often is a lifelong battle and uh, struggle. And I think that's, you know, what God sees, you know, our desire and our willingness to struggle with it and to give ourselves over as much as we can to the action of his grace. But uh, often I think we become you know, satisfied with allowing ourselves that judgment that gives free reign to it, allows us to let it loose on, on others. And so we ha have to bat begin to battle somewhere. And I think this is the path that John is laying out before us. Okay, maybe one, just one more here. Uh, where did I leave off? Number 16, I've seen angry people push away food out of bitterness, and yet through their unreasonable abstinence, they only added poison to poison. And I've seen others who on becoming irate for some supposedly reasonable cause, but really unreasonable, gave themselves up to gluttony and fell out of a pit headlong over a precipice. But I've seen others who were sensible, who by mixing both like, like good physicians, have gained from moderate consolation very great profit. So anger can lead us to extremes. So, you know, some people when they are uh, immersed in this deep anger, in their frustration will push away food and sort of go to, you know, this kind of fasting, uh, more, more as a kind of uh, uh, an emo emotional defense mechanism, uh, or to, you know, sort of counteract in their own mind, their image of themselves, you know, sort of uh, swallowed up by anger, they embrace a deeper discipline, uh, but it's really a, distract, a distraction from the real problem there. And so they embrace a kind of discipline that only will intensify their agitation and irritation, is what John is saying here. That they fall into this extreme, they'll push away food and anger, lose that gratitude for what God has given them, and then be drawn even deeper. And similarly, a person can seek to console themselves through food when they are anger. And so eat, you know, eat aggressively and so are, uh, and, you know, gnawing at food, even when they're not hungry uh, and go to the other extreme. And so, and what John, you know, it's, it really shows the kind of uh, physicians, spiritual physicians they were. He said, 
there is a kind of moderate response there where when one feels overwhelmed by anger, that to console oneself in legitimate ways, to ease up, if you will, uh, enough to allow oneself to, to breathe, uh, that the anger can often dissipate on its own. Uh, one of the Carthusians, I think it's St. Bruno said, you know, that at a certain point, you have to let the taut bow loose or you destroy it. So if you keep the bow hold constantly, it's, it's eventually going to destroy it altogether. Or there's uh, one contemporary monk says when, you know, everything seems chaotic or you feel that you're wrapped in despair, stop and have a cup of tea. You know, as if to say, you know, slow things down to allow that moment to pass. You know, to have a little, little bit there of worldly consolation that can sort of bring the heart back to where it needs to be. And to me, that seems to be wise counsel. He's, you know, because anger would thrust us in one direction or another. So it's a great little image. So you can have your Snickers bar every once in a while if, it, if you're hangry and, uh, if, and it keeps you from lashing out at another, you know, better, better, than, better than becoming angry at them. So, okay, folks, that brings us to 8.30. So we're going <laughs> to stop there for the night. Uh, thank you. You know, again, always, always challenging material. And uh, it's good to go through it with everybody. So have a good week, everybody. And when we close this, always with the Our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God.